Good morning. Uh, my name's Chris. If I've not met you, I'm one staff here at Riverstone. Um, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts 8. Um, if you're new, you caught us um, in the middle of a series, uh, walking through the book of Acts. Um, and so just so it doesn't feel like you're walking into a movie 30 minutes late, let me give you um, some references and where we're picking up. Um, the book starts, the book of Acts starts with some really important things for us to acknowledge because they end up being a roadmap for the whole book. Primarily Acts 1 verses 8, when Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus effectively gives us a roadmap of what the entire rest of the book is going to be about, right? So we, today, we're going to start seeing the kind of the catalyst that starts step three of that roadmap. So how am I putting it in steps? Well, let me give you step one that I would acknowledge as step one. Pentecost came in Jerusalem. First couple chapters, they're filled with power and confidence that is clearly outside of themselves, right? They're this small, disenfranchised minority religious sects couple hundred people, right? And Peter had betrayed Jesus. They saw him alive, spent about 40 days with him, right? And they're still confused. They're still unsure. They're still hiding in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit comes pretty dramatically, if you read Acts 3, right? And 3,000 people are saved in that moment, right? Church, first church was apparently a mega church. That was step one. Step one, Holy Spirit came, okay? Step two, they then begin to do exactly what Jesus said they'd do, which is be his witness in Jerusalem. All right, did you catch that? So to the vexation of the religious establishment, right, this small sect that they thought they had squashed out when they killed Jesus, right? The religious leaders of their day were jealous of this dude Jesus, had him crucified by the Romans and said, now we're done with that mess, right? And now... 3,000 people strong, and worse, it's like Jesus has multiplied himself, and now these guys are doing exactly the same thing Jesus was doing, except there's 3,000 of them, right? They're preaching crazy stuff, they're healing people, their miracles and signs and wonders are happening left and right, and the same persecution that fell on Jesus then begins to fall on the disciples, right? So that was what we talked about a couple weeks ago. They're arrested, they're threatened, but it becomes clear that this small group of nobodies, right, a bunch of fishermen, have some sort of strength and power that is outside themselves. They are uneducated, right? And, and yet they leave the religious, cultural, elite PhDs of their day speechless. All right, powerful moment we talked about in Acts 5, right? The authorities say, hey, look, y'all need to stop talking about this dude. We killed him. He's dead. He ain't alive. I don't know what you're talking about. Quit talking about him. Quit healing people. And they say, no way. Not going to obey men. We're going to obey God. And they go on with all the more confidence, all the more brazenness, preaching and healing and being what Jesus has called them to be in Jerusalem. That leads then to last week, where the first seven chapters within the uh, birth of the church First person is killed, martyred for their faith. Christianity has a long history of people who have been killed for their faith and have refused to back down even inside of death. So seven chapters into the birth of the church, first person is killed, violence, bloodshed happens. The leaders stone Stephen, okay? Killed for his faith, he's stoned to death. And y'all, if you were here last week, even in the midst of a bloody, violent, night 
nightmarish death. He is killed by blunt trauma. Is that the right word? Yeah. Huh? Even in the midst of that, Stephen reflects the mercy of Christ, following Jesus even in death, and says, Father, forgive them. Unbelievable. And we pick up today now, the beginning of chapter 8, where after this initial act of violence against Stephen, mass persecution that day breaks out against those who follow Jesus. So today we're going to sit, uh, we're going to get our first introduction with a new character. If we, what we said week one, Jesus is the only consistent character who stays on the stage through the entire book of Acts. We start with Peter. Now we're looking at Philip. Then we're going to go to Paul. And so we change scenes with different kind of leaders, but Jesus is the only constant thread throughout the entirety of the book. So we're going to get an introduction to Saul, who will become Paul, right, and become the leading figure in the early missional uh, efforts of the church. And we will see the beginning of step three. So step one, Holy Spirit falls in Jerusalem. Step two, they begin to witness to the power of Jesus in Jerusalem. And step three, witnessing about that same Jesus now in Samaria, Okay? We're stepping out of the walls of Jerusalem, working out in concentric circles away from Jerusalem that will not stop through the pages of history even today. We sit in Buford, Georgia, of all places, because this started 2,000 some odd years ago and they wouldn't stop talking about this guy. And something seems to parallel the proclamation of who this man is in which power comes. It's weird. It's mysterious. We don't get it. When the proclamation of the gospel happens, something tends to happen in its hearers. It's not just words. It's not just a story. It's not just a historical figure. It's something else. And here we are today sitting because it did not stop spreading since then. Love that. We're a testimony of that, right? Exactly what Jesus said would come true. They witnessed in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so what started as a small minority persecuted religious sect in first century Palestine, now is the most culturally and ethnically diverse religion on the face of the earth. One out of three people today claims some sort of affiliation of Christianity. And it started there 2,000 years ago. So the two things, so you're up to speed, all right? The two things that we're gonna focus on today is this. Number one, how God can and does routinely redeem affliction, adversity, and even persecution to retroactively use them for our joy and his glory. It's one of the wonderful mysteries of the aspects of salvation that Jesus has for those who believe. Okay, that's the first thing we're gonna sit with. First half of the sermon is gonna be that. Second half is gonna be this. The indisputable pervasiveness of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the early church. Okay, so you type A-ers, there it is. It's my whole sermon right there. So, it cannot be ignored or overstated the degree in which the power and presence of the Holy Spirit marked everything done by the early church. It cannot be ignored nor overstated. Okay, and today we're going to sit with what some will surely call controversial theology about the Holy Spirit. So let's go to the text first. So remember, 
in the last verses of chapter 7, an enraged mob rushes Stephen. They throw stones at him until he dies. Death by blunt force trauma. It is bloody. It is gory. He is murdered in the streets. And then we pick up chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stay put. They hold the ground. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered about, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs he did, four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so much so that there was much joy in that city. The whole city stirred up because this man, right? But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria and saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great, 11 And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He's like, man, my my tricks are cheap parlor tricks compared to what this guy's got. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. The words in the original language are much stronger than that because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with me. He basically says, go to hell with you and your money. 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. May it be, anyway, anyway, let's move on. Um, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages um, of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father, would you um, grant us now, Lord, the peace of the Holy Spirit to sit with Scripture in such a way that it forms how we live and think and move and breathe. Holy Spirit, come and reveal to us the things which our natural mind cannot comprehend. 
primarily the glory of Christ. Come, Jesus, open our eyes to these things. In your name we pray these. Amen. So number one, how God can and does routinely redeem affliction, adversity, and even persecution to retroactively use them for our joy and his glory. So remember, Jesus had commanded them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth first, right? And that's exact phrasing that we see again in this passage. And yet, up until this point, they seem to have been content to stay in Jerusalem. I think it's interesting that it's not until persecution breaks out in the church do we see any clear action towards Jesus' original command to move beyond Jerusalem. Now, I'm in no way trying to diminish the beauty of the community, full of devotion and generosity and gratitude like we've said in many times, but it seems a general rule, even baptized with power, full of the Holy Spirit, seeing signs and wonders, walking in generosity, even amidst all of those things, the human heart seems to tether itself to its own comfort as its highest good. God said, go. And even though they were being faithful witnesses in Jerusalem, they were being faithful witnesses in Jerusalem. They were doing the stuff. They needed a nudge to get out beyond their own walls. Why? Why were they content to stay in Jerusalem and continue doing what they had been doing. Well, first of all, it was super exciting. You kidding me? Like, we're talking like, if you add up the numbers from the first uh, chapter of Acts, like 15,000 people, grand money, 15,000 people, probably, that's what theologians are gonna say, up until this point have, I mean, this thing is just exploding, just billowing out, right? Signs and miracles, it had to be unbelievably exciting. Not only was there newness, but they're trying to establish, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus? You know, it's all these things are being established. Surely there was tons of enthusiasm and excitement. It was a very exciting place to be around. But more than that, the reason they more than likely stayed in Jerusalem is this was still a Jewish movement only. Now, I'm going to try to convince you of this further in scripture. Despite all the prophecies about God saving and healing the Gentiles, blessing the nations, despite the fact that Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth, many in the early church still thought this was a Jewish renewal movement for Jews. There was still a question in the early church's mind, do other cultures, do other races, do other people groups get in on this salvation or is this just for the Jews? Like we said last week, the over, or the first week, the overarching question of the book of Acts and seen in many of the books of the New Testament is, do the Gentiles get in on this? And if so, on what terms? So many of the epistles, the letters of the New Testament that are written, right, are addressing the cultural and ethnic conflicts that came up when Jews did life with Gentiles. Read the book, man. It's in there. I'm not making this stuff up. And to really understand this, we have to sit with the national heritage, the ethnic heritage of the Jewish people, right? They were God's chosen nation states. God chose them to reveal his glory to the nations. And of course, with that choosing came unavoidable pride in ethnocentrism. Let's just be real. Old Testament, ton of ethnic and cultural wars <laughs> and hatred and all sorts of things. And of course, some of that came out of this sense of, hey man, we're the chosen. God chose us, not y'all. And there's all sorts of bloodshed in the Old Testament. So sure, 
proselytes or converts to Judaism. You could come along, but you ain't going to have the kind of responsibility. You're never going to be a true Jew, right? Like second chapter of uh, second half of the uh, chapter of eight, we didn't read an Ethiopian get saved uh, by Philip after the part we didn't read. He was a proselyte, a convert, but he wasn't going to give, they weren't going to give this guy responsibility or leadership in the temple. He could come, sure, but he's nowhere near a pure Jew. Okay, so Throughout the Old Testament, there's undeniable ethnic and racial tension, even hatred, informed certainly by this national identity. So the excitement and the growth, right, and this question mark around do other people get in on this or not, probably had some impact on why they stayed in Jerusalem. And God uses the sinful, jealous, murderous actions of those who hate this new community to begin the next phase of his plan. The murder of Stephen uh, broke out, spilled over into mass persecution against the church. And that then causes the people of God to scatter and thus the message of God scatters, right? So then if you're like me, the natural question follows. Did God cause the, religion, the religious leaders to kill Stephen? Did he want that to happen? Does he make horrible things happen so that good can come. And I think a staunch Calvinist would say, well, yes, that's what we believe. I think most people would struggle with that, right? I think the way I see it is that God can take sinful, horrible things, like things that are blatantly against his will. Murder is kind of a biblical no-no, right? Right? But in God's wisdom and in his power is such that he can take horrible things that happen and turn them in a way that serves his redemptive purposes in history for our lasting joy and his standing glory. God can take the sins of your youth. He can take the sins that seem to be strangling your life right now. He can take wounds and betrayal and scars of the past and use them in redemptive ways in your life that you could never see or imagine. The murder of Stephen was a tragedy, y'all. They mourned for him. We're not looking at the murder through rose-colored glasses saying, well, it's all how you look at it. That's what Eastern religions do. No, it was evil. It was pure evil. Not only was it evil against Stephen, but his friends and his family, and unleashes evil against the church, right? Why did Stephen's murder unleash this evil persecution against the church? Well, apparently the Romans turned a blind eye. The Roman authorities just said, I don't know about this weird religious sect going on. They're killing each other in the streets. Eh. And it serves as a green light for anyone who hates this new movement to start killing them, right? And, and Saul just goes for it, right? Zealous for the purity of Judaism. You know, to Saul, these guys are worshiping a false Messiah. And so he is purifying a Judaism by dragging them off into prison. Really, we're going to get into his story later. Super interesting. So you can imagine now the religious leaders in Jerusalem thinking, well, that worked out well, right? Like we killed their guy, stoned Stephen. And that's, that's totally going to take care of this group, right? Let's see if Stephen rises from the dead. Right? This is going to squash that thing out. They're going to scatter. And just like other messianic groups, they're going to fizzle out. Right? And at first look, it looks to be the case. Right? They scatter. 
They're, just, they're afraid. It seems like things are falling apart, right? The numbers dwindle. But where does it say they go? Well, it's the exact same phrasing that Jesus used at the beginning. They go to Judea and all of Samaria, right? It's the exact places that he said they would go. And it wouldn't have been a problem if they had been scattered and defeated into silence, but they're scattered and they're not defeated. They just keep preaching about this guy, right? So even adversity and persecution and sorrow can't keep Holy, Spil- Holy Spirit filled people from running their mouths about Jesus. Okay. So now they knew what was at stake, y'all. They knew what was at stake. They could lose their lives and scattered as they were, they can't help but keep talking about what they had seen and experienced in the Holy Spirit and by Jesus. It was simply too glorious. Something about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we see pervasively up until this point, had changed them. It changed their values so that even knowing they were risking their very lives, they would not stop preaching about this man, Jesus. God can and does routinely redeem affliction and adversity and even persecution to retroactively use them for his glory. So this deal is is a bit tough though, isn't it? Oftentimes, we can't see the full picture that I've just described to you in the moment of affliction, can we? So many Christians to me seem trite when they try to convince me in moments of affliction and sorrow that everything's gonna be fine because God's in control. Can I just be honest with you? Sometimes it annoys me. I'm just like, shut up, man. God can't redeem this. I mean, has anyone ever been in such moments of sorrow? Has the dark night of the soul never crowded in on you? That you'd say, man, God can't redeem this mess? Does anyone else struggle with that? In the moment of sorrow and affliction and someone tries to tell you, oh, it's all gonna work out, and you're like, shut up, man, no, it's not. You're not here. You, you know, not my shoes. Does anyone struggle with that? I mean, has the night never closed in on you to you say, I don't think I can ever walk right again? Has the wounds of betrayal and persecution, I mean, has it, does anyone struggle with the idea that God can make something beautiful out of what you're going through that tends to squash your life out, right? And I just want you to have ears to hear today that God can take you, even you, even your sins and your wounds, the depths of which no one can relate to or fully understand that he can take those and by his spirit, redeem it. Not only for your joy, but for other people's joy. Isn't it hard to see that in the moment? God just wants to tell somebody all today, man, this too shall pass. And he will, he will work through the sorrow. God, it's hard, man. Some of us are going through real tough things. God wants you to know that today. Woo, it's getting me, all right. Second Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, we have the luxury of seeing the whole picture of Acts, don't we? In Acts, we can see how God uses discomfort to get the church of Jerusalem off its routine to spread the gospel. It's often harder to see that in our own lives and struggles and hardships, right? But our confidence is not in the fact that we can understand 
how God may use our sorrows and affliction. Our confidence is that he is a God who can use and will redeem our most sorrowful and difficult things that we may have to endure in this life for his glory and our joy. Thank you, God. So the question then seems obvious to me. How might God might be wanting to use your discomfort in this season for his glory? I mean, all of us are uncomfortable in some way or another right now, right? I mean, we're not all being persecuted, right? But certain, there have been destabilizing forces outside of our control that is affecting all of us in some way or another. Amen? Okay, right. How might God might be wanting, how might he might be wanting to use that discomfort for his glory in this season? Now, I'd argue it might not be that different from the way he used it in Philip's life, how Philip responded. In adversity, Philip chose not to hunker down not to self-preserve, but he laid his displacement at the feet of Jesus and said, where do you want me to go? And he goes to Samaria, not to hide, but to preach. Now, why is this shocking? Well, (laughs) not only was there a question about outsiders getting in on this salvation, Samaritans hated Jews, and Jews hated Samaritans. And John 4, 9 tells us when Jesus begins to talk to the Samarian woman at the well, she's shocked because she said, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? In 17, and sorry, in 721 BC, the Jews fall into Assyrian Babylonian captivity. Some Jews chose to marry their captors and settled in Samaria. So the Jews saw Samaritans as half-breed traitors, right? Not fully Gentile, not fully Jew. And here Philip, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, says, these guys get in. And lo and behold, they pay attention to him. They believe, right? People start getting baptized. And centuries of racial hostility and hatred overcome by the power of the gospel in a moment because someone is willing to get outside themselves and love the crew that their party maybe political party in our day of age, had deemed unlovable. In fact, the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God is so powerful, it says that there was much joy in the whole city. Boom, Philip Philip lets his discomfort push him outside of himself, full of God's grace for others, and gives his attention to the undeserving and those that had been dismissed in his society, extends God's love to them, and boom, God gets glory and he got joy. Have you allowed the discomfort that we've all been feeling to push you outside of yourself, to extend God's love to others, or has it caused you to turn inward and only commit further to look out for number one in this season? God has a mission for the church, y'all. Maybe, especially in times of adversity and persecution. Now, let's move on to number two. The indisputable pervasiveness of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the early church. As God is molding this new community into a form that he has designed it for, it seems that the living presence and power of the Holy Spirit is integral fundamental, essential to what it means to be the church. This presence, 
this leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit has marked almost every recorded action that we have read so far. It's almost impossible to argue otherwise. I want you to see something in this text that makes some of us, may make some of us somewhat uncomfortable, okay? Starts in verse 12, should be on the screen. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So in this text, what I just read to you, if you see what I saw, there is... Something that happens where you can be baptized with water, but not the Holy Spirit. It's not until the apostles pray for them that the Holy Spirit falls on them, falls on them. That's the language, right? In Acts 19, we'll see a very similar pattern with Apollos that we'll get to, you know, someday. <laughs> when Paul, formerly artist known as Saul, right, shows up and says... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we don't even know there's a Holy Spirit. And he prays for them, they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so in Acts, it becomes clear that believing, repenting, conversion is not the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a highly contentious theological bone for many people, right? They say, no, man, listen, when you get saved, you get all, you get everything, you get it all. There's no second tier Christianity. I mean, obviously people can get uncomfortable when you talk about this kind of stuff because it seems to create this class system in Christianity. You Holy Ghost Christian? You're not a Holy Ghost. You nominal? You holy, you know, right? Or you charismatic? Or do you believe the Bible, right? However you want to phrase it, right? There's all sorts of divisions that have been caused in the church by this theology. But my point is not how men have responded. My point is that it's clearly in the Bible. I can't, I can't do anything else, y'all. I'm just, I'm just reading it. I don't, I don't know how else to say to you, all right? Faith in Jesus Belief, even water baptism, is not the same thing, according to Acts, as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's plenty of other theological things that you can point to to say, no, no, wait, 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 and they're there. They're, 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 it's, it is an argument amongst Christians to this day, because there is evidence of both ways, but lo and behold, here it is in Acts, right? And really, I mean, if you think about it, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, we know, just like any other thing, there is a spectrum in Christianity or I'm sorry, just like anything in which there is a spectrum, spectrum of intimacy or spectrum of maturity, so is Christianity. Christians are called to grow in grace, right? Second Peter 3.18, to mature, to move forward, to not be babies, but to be more like Jesus, to grow, to change. Ephesians 4.15, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are to be transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit. So Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd says, the Christian is someone who has received something of the fullness of Christ and goes on receiving it increasingly. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are distinct markers of transformation on the Christian journey. There are stages and steps that it doesn't all happen at once. Now, that being said, the language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts always seems to be language of God doing something to you at a certain point in time. All right, there is time and place and experience involved in the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It is an event in their life. It is experienced, it is obvious, and it is transformative. Now, how do we know that? Well, every time it happens in the book of Acts, everyone seems to know it. 
There's no question, right? In fact, so much so, Simon sees it happening and says, dude, I'll pay money if I can have that, if I can have that kind of power, right? The impact of the Holy Spirit falling is apparently so visible and powerful that Simon the magician realized his magic is cheap tricks compared to what the Holy Spirit does. He realized if he could have that power, he could maintain his reputation, right? And Peter condemns him for trying to buy the free gift of God with money. But my point is that something happens and it's evident to everyone. Therefore, this in the Christian life is not a slow process of growth and maturation. This is, that is walking by the Spirit. That's a slow process. That's maturity. That's continued willingness. What we're reading about here is an event, a moment where God gives himself to you in a direct and experiential way. The biblical language is that of gifts. He, the Holy Spirit is given. He is poured out. You are filled in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it seems clear in Acts that God is the active agent and you are the passive recipient of something that he does to you. It is gospel, right? And according to the Bible, it's not always synonymous with, repent, with repentance and belief in water baptism. In fact, we see a wide variety of how the sequence happens in the book of Acts, right? So at Pentecost, they're just praying together, right? No slow music, no whisper singing, you know? No, no moral, you know, all you sinners, right? None, none of that. He just shows up, man. Holy Spirit, bam, right? No water baptism. No apparent moment of repentance. He just shows up, just praying. And here in Acts 8, they had been baptized, Right? They had already believed there's no reason we should doubt in any way the authenticity of their faith. Not, we have no evidence of that from the text itself. You can say, well, they didn't really believe. Okay, well, you're, you're imposing that on the text. It does not say that. It says they believe. Same word. What is it? Epistos or something like that? Same word used throughout the whole, whole entire New Testament of saving faith. Okay? I speak Greek, obviously. No, I don't. In Acts 10, in Acts 10, in Cornelius' house, Holy Spirit falls mid-sermon. I'd be like, I didn't even get to my main point. I had three more jokes, you know? Like, no altar call, no slow music, no emotional whisper prayers. He's just preaching. Bam, Holy Spirit falls, right? So Lloyd-Jones says this. All the variations of how this happens points to one thing. And I have a lot of, I went slide crazy today, so you can enjoy it. If you're visual, lucky you. The given elements of the Holy Spirit. All the variations of how this happens points to one thing, the given element of the Holy Spirit. You cannot stereotype or systemize this or say very well, this is all you have to do. No, it is always this given element, the pouring out, the falling upon, the being filled. In other words, all these variations establish the lordship of Jesus in the entire matter. It is he who is the giver. It is he who is the baptizer. He does it in his own way and in his own time, and we must never lose sight of this all-important principle. So you might even say that Simon is condemned for his desire to be in control of this process, to systemize it, to monetize it, to turn it effectively into witchcraft. Witchcraft says all you have to do is stomp twice, throw some goat's bones and some cow blood, right? And then boom, you got it. You're in control. 
right? So the way that happens in the church, the way witchcraft makes its way into the church is say, well, all you have to do is lay your hands on them and say this exact word and boom, get the Holy Spirit. It's not the Bible. It's not what we see in scripture, okay? Despite so many people's attempts to control the Holy Spirit and turn him into a formula, that's simply not what we see in scripture, okay? Jesus told us this is his business. He baptizes in the Holy Spirit, not us, okay? Now, that doesn't mean we don't play a part. It just means we're not in charge, okay? So again, the point is distinguishing between repentance and faith intellectual believing and being filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this biblical reality can obviously make uh, some people uncomfortable, right? Primarily, have I received the Holy Spirit? It can cause distress and uncertainty, right? And I know pastors who have basically said, I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit anymore because it makes my people uncomfortable. It makes them feel unsure, right? So they say now, well, when you believe, you know, you, and there's plenty of scripture that you can back that up with. When you believe, you get all God's going to give you. And I see how that's an attractive thing when it comes to making people feel comfortable. But I, I just got to say, I don't think that's my job. Right? You got to impose some of that theology. Over, you got to impose it on what we're reading to make it work. Right? You got to kind of, there's no evidence about and not, they say, well, they didn't really believe. Well, you're imposing that, right? It's not in the text, right? So while I don't think it's my job, to get out in front of you and shield you from the discomfort uh, of this question, I think it is my job to help you honestly ask the question, have I experienced and am I walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Then you can discern that in your own life. So here's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. I'm going to wrap it up pretty quick, right? We don't have, a, we don't have time for a con- com- comprehensive survey of what the Holy Spirit does, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a list and we'll focus on a few, Okay. Is that okay? No one's okay with that. Okay, good thing. He's called the helper, the counselor, the advocate, John 14, the spirit of truth, John 16, the spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 1 Peter 1. He reveals the things of God. He guides into truth. He convicts of sin. He glorifies Jesus. He reminds us of the things Jesus has said and done, John 14 through 16. He imparts spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. He's a deposit of heaven, 2 Corinthians 1.22. He imparts power, Acts 2. He purifies, Matthew 11, 3.11, sorry. He causes his own likeness to be seen in and through your life Galatians 5, and that's in no way an exhaustive list. It's just scratching the surface, but let's look at a few. John 16, 14, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, takes what is his, and makes it known to us. Let's sit with this for a second, right? A.W. Tozer says this, the Holy Spirit brings the wonderful mystery that is God and presents him to the human spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the primary purpose and function of the Holy Spirit is to enable us to be witnesses to Jesus and his great salvation. And the way he does that is by making real to us the things which we have believed by faith, the things of which we have had but a kind of indirect certainty only. And the Holy Spirit makes these things immediately real. The Holy Spirit takes what once seemed aloof and ethereal and makes it alive and vibrant to you. He takes wonderful theology, theology that we uh, experience as a sort of dream, right? Like freedom, 
salvation, streams in the desert, theology that we say, mmm, yes, that sounds wonderful. Yet we access it like we do dreams. It's far off. It's not real. And he makes those a living reality in our life. Tozer again says this. It is quite plain in the scriptural revelation that spiritual things are hidden by a veil. And by nature, a human does not have the ability to comprehend and get hold of them. See Romans 8 for that. He comes up against a blank wall. He takes doctrine and texts and proofs and creeds and theology and lays them up like a wall, but he cannot find the gate. What a piercing picture. A wall of brilliant gospel theology, ideas of hope and power and freedom, what should give us life and have the, have the effect of making us feel locked out because we can't find the gate into it. He says, that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's tragic, right? Knowing all the right answers, having all the right beliefs, but being powerless to walk in them. The Holy Spirit takes the things of God and brings them into our living existence, not just our thinking. He makes them immediately real. Something else the Holy Spirit does is bear fruit in our lives. Last thing we'll sit with. I know I'm going long today. Galatians 5 says this. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If you grew up in church, you can probably quote it. So you could then well ask, well, if I have these things in my life, I must be full of the Spirit. But the point is, in the language, is that it's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So the question is not, am I all those things? Am I kind? Am I loving? Do I have joy? The question is, does the kindness of God flow through me? The question is, does the love of God saturate me? Not am I a loving person? Anyone can be a, you can be a loving person. It's not the question. The question is, does the love of God saturate me? Does the kindness of God flow through me? Does the patience of God himself, the very essence of God, bear its fruit in my life? This is not, am I an awesome person? Do I look great to other people? That's not the question. If that's the case, you get the glory. The fruit of the Spirit brings glory to Jesus because it's his fruit. It's not yours. That's the language of Galatians 5. And so the question is not, am I these things? The question is, does the love of God so saturate, saturate me in such a way that my life begins to take on the very essence of God himself? That his essence begins to flow through me, right? It's not my qualities on display in the Christian life. If that's the case, I'd get the glory, right? And the whole point of Christianity would be image management. I need people to think I'm awesome. But... That's not the point of Christianity. It's bringing glory to God. And how does that happen? Well, we bear his fruit in our lives. We don't manifest the fruit ourselves. We don't tie a little love apple to our tree. No, it's his love apple. It's coming through our tree. Kind of a weird analogy. but Don't take that anywhere. It's not supposed to go. The Holy Spirit showing himself through us, and we therefore become a vessel of his glory. From scripture, it seems, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that enables us to show forth his essence to the world, him himself. We're not merely trying to mimic. So let me just show you where I get that from the Bible in case that feels radical, right? Jesus said, he who believes in me, living water shall flow from within him. This is a direct reference to Jeremiah 17, 13, where God himself calls himself a fountain of living water. 
So, so Jesus is saying, you're not just going to be a vessel to hold God's life, but an avenue through which God flows, a source of life, not just something that you're holding, right? And second, the original language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit gets at this too. The word is baptizo, baptizo. Okay, so let me read you a little uh, commentary about this. The clearest example that shows the meaning of the word baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicandor, who lived about 200 uh, B.C., and it is a recipe for making pickles. Nicandor says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, babto, that's not the word, into boiling water, and then baptizo, baptized, in vinegar. So both verbs uh, concern the immersing of vegetable in solution. The first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing, baptizo, is a permanent change. And the word in the New Testament for being baptized in the Holy Spirit is not baptos, not dipped. It's baptizo. It's saturated. You've been pickled. This, the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, all this fruit, fruit analogies today. The Holy Spirit is to so saturate you that the very essence of who you are begins to be changed and transformed. Where does the Holy Spirit begin and where do I end? Well, chew a pickle. See if you can figure it out. Right? So the question then is, do I welcome his character, his love, forgiveness, kindness in me to the point that it begins to color all I see and do, change the way I approach relationships, how I fight sin, how I speak to others? Have I given him access to every part or are there still doors and windows that I have closed in my soul to him, right? And this brings up an interesting question, which I'll kind of, we'll, we'll wrap it up now. Think about it this way. Do I want to be filled with a spirit that is other than my own. That's a weird way to say it, isn't it? I'll one-up you. Do I want to be possessed by a spirit that is not my own? See, we, we think of spirit possession as we think of poltergeist. But you see, it works in the opposite way too, doesn't it? Am I willing to allow the spirit of Christ to begin to influence me in a way that I'm going to act and think differently than I would or could on my own, to literally empower me, right? You can encounter the Holy Spirit of God, feel him calling you through worship and creation and all the other means that stir your affections toward God and still not surrender to the Spirit in a way in which he saturates and empowers your entire being, right? For those uh, in Scripture and throughout history, John Wesley, D.L. Moody, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, every single one of them wrote about this experience. Every single one of them wrote about an experience they had after saving faith that was marked by surrender, elation, emotional relief, guilt removed, the glory of Jesus felt and almost always accompanied by a deep sense of abiding joy. Every single one of those great men that I said throughout history have written about this experience. So this is not some one-off, bizarre theology thing that I'm throwing at you out of left field. It is historical. It is biblical. And as some might try, it is impossible to read the book of Acts without reckoning with the fact that the presence of God, the Spirit of God, was the defining factor of this new Jesus community, Right? It seems inseparable from what it meant to be a Christian. Now, let's chat for a second, then we'll get out of here. This can create 
a lot of obstacles for us. Whether it be from our own reliance on scientific explanation of the universe or because we've been uh, burned in charismatic circles. A lot of obstacles come into our minds when we think about the empowering and presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Because whether it's because we can't explain it and we're afraid of it or because we've seen emotional manipulation and exploitation done under the guise of Holy Spirit ministry. And many of us have resigned from pursuing and inviting and asking God's Holy Spirit to fill us for those reasons, right? And many of us, I think, can relate to the picture that A.W. Tozer gave about being locked out of a wall of theology. I think many of us, if we are honest, can relate to the feeling that I have good theology, I know the ideas, I know what I'm supposed to believe, but it is a wall to me and not a gate through which I can enter, right? And I think if you would say you feel that way, that God wants to meet you today, And I would argue that he wants to lead you into his goodness in a way that you could never lead yourself and that it's something that only he can do. So from our conversation, I would say that there are two main elements when it comes to receiving the gift, receiving the Holy Spirit. And the first is this little wrap-up summary, right? It is the gift of God. It is something he gives. We can't give it ourselves. He has to do it. And number two, this, God cannot fill a cup that is already full basically what I've said in in differing terms. And basic physics can help us get that. If we insist on demanding ownership over our vessel and everything in it, if we refuse to relinquish temporary desires and temporary delights, if we refuse to obey, refuse to yield, and insist on dictating to God how we will live, he cannot fill us. And both of these things, the fact that it is gift and the fact that we have to make room for it has in them the element of surrender. Matt, come on up. Galatians 5.25 says this. We are to live by the Spirit. If you live by a compass or if you live by a clock, what does that mean? Well, it means that every five seconds you're checking it. Am I going north? Am I going north? Am I, going? I live by the compass. Am I going north? What time is it? Am I going to be late? I live by the clock, right? What time is it, right? Over and over and over again, it's looking to something, something else to lead you, to inform the way you're thinking and acting and moving. So stand with me and let's pray.